This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 98 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Omega Fields, the world's best omega-3 supplements for horses. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. And today, we have two women, very different in their callings, but both highly evolved horse trainers. This is Debbie Lauks, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st of the 15th and the 15th of the month, and I have my producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. Greetings, Debbie. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Calling, I'm hailing from the Columbia Gorge in Washington State, right on the border of Washington, Oregon. Literally took a bridge from Oregon to Washington to land down on a lodge called Scamania Lodge. And it's beautiful. Oh, it's gorgeous. It was Probably 75 degrees outside. This is uh, September 28th, as we're talking to you right now and recording this. And uh, that's warm for this part of the world. This is where the windsurfers come to, I don't know why, but go 30 to 45 miles an hour <laughs> across, across the Columbia. And it's amazing to watch. I'm watching probably a dozen sails out there, these windsurfers whooping across this beautiful stretch of the Columbia Gorge, just surrounded, just peppered by huge, I guess, ponderosa pines all the way around, blue, blue water, probably enough salmon in there to, you know, feed an army. And it's just gorgeous. Cool just gorgeous. That? What, what yeah. brings you to Oregon? Well, this is the news that what I can't you tell you. <laughs> yes. Thank you for asking. Uh, actually, I'm here to present at the, it's a national meeting of the USPA, which is the United States Polo Association. They have some wonderful horses that we hope to, uh, take our horse sense and healing and expand it to some facilities that go across the United States. We're going to start in the West Coast and uh, back east uh, in one spot. And we were kind of looking for regions where there are veterans gathered. And we hope to avail ourselves to their quiet little ponies for our join-up sessions, or we call the program Horse Sense and Healing. And they're such cool people, Jen. We, My husband and I, Tom, came up here last night and they had a cocktail party. And I felt like it was speed dating. (laughs) We would go from one just encourager to another. And they were so, they're just so behind helping veterans and using horses to help veterans and using Polo ponies to help veterans. And we just met the nicest people. And they all, you know, what's amazing is each one of their stories somehow intersects with a join up in their life. They either saw dad on tour somewhere or they've been to the farm or just polo is a real tight knit community of wonderful people that we've met. And they really love their horses and they are encouraged by the fact that their organization is growing such that they have a bit of a an income to help what they have an armed forces committee now for to put some money behind helping veterans with PTSD. Yeah. That's really neat. And polo okay. ponies, once they retire from being polo ponies, and frequently they have very long careers. Yes. I think polo ponies are one of those many here in the United States underappreciated second career horses. I've had, I've 
had the opportunity to ride a number of polo ponies in their second careers. Have you? Good. And they are such versatile, sensible, athletic animals. And if anybody has a chance to go to a horse sense and healing or otherwise get to know a current polo pony or retired one, I would encourage you to do so because they're pretty impressive. They're pretty amazing horses. Mm -hmm. They really are. Thank you. And I think think what I love about them most for this particular thing is they're they're sensitive enough and athletic enough to be great at doing a join up because they can be directed but you know as opposed to our bubble wrapped horses that we we take down to the show ring you know yes. uh, you could you could see a string of uh, more than half a dozen polo ponies being led along on another polo pony by a groom and they're all just you know a herd. They they're lovely horses that way. That's you don't. True. They're that, not bubble wrapped. Yeah, that's an excellent point in that they have retained the skill set of communicating amongst themselves in their yeah. own language. Whereas a show horse has a tendency early in his career to become isolated. Yeah, and yeah, he no, lo- yeah. He no longer gets to use those skill sets, and he he is not very good at them. And yeah, yeah they, they get bubble wrapped and they get enclosed in that little that little capsule whereas a polo pony i think you're right is a little bit more horse yeah they do really are sweet and uh and i think they're starting to breed some of the thoroughbred into the polo ponies which makes them a little more quick and sensitive but with the gentling process all changing to join up now the the top uh i would say influencers in the industry the adolfo cambiasos the gracida the um there's just so many good players out there. Nick Roldan, who are adopting Join Up as a way of starting their horses. There isn't that fractious, they're going to get you someday, um, worry from the horses. Yeah. So so you can breed that sensitivity and speed back in them, too, and really have. And, you know, people really are loving their horses, too. We listened to story after story last night of these uh, horse lovers who just said, you know, I have these two ponies that we started with join up just recently, and they're my favorites because they just we have a bond. You know, that that was the common word. We have a bond. And these are I'm talking about 50, 60 year old Latino men, men and, you know, guys from all over the world. To see that is just heartwarming. It's just heartwarming to me. It's just the world is really changing for the better for horses. It's very fun. What's happening in your herd? Don't well, let me. On a Dictate. similar topic. Yeah, okay. We, have, and we talked a little bit, might have been two episodes ago, we were talking a little bit about schooling a horse wearing the dually halter. So I'm going to prerequisite this conversation with explain what you mean when you say somebody's schooling with a dually mm. halter. Okay, that's a good question. Thank you. Yeah, because it, it does sound like maybe a cover-up word for jerking them around yeah, or something. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the dually halter, let me explain how the dually halter works first, and maybe it'll become more obvious what I mean. The dually halter is a choice-based instrument, yeah? A choice-based piece of equipment. So it's it's really not a fancy thing or something that you necessarily are going to show in. It is a training piece. Yeah. Take it off when you're done with the schooling moment. So what's schooling? Schooling is when you close your hand on a dually halter and you stand still and your horse keeps walking, <laughs> keeps going right through that, then what's going to happen is he is going to if it's clipped onto the schooling ring, we're assuming that it's not just on the regular halter ring down below his chin. It's clipped on the schooling ring, let's say, on the left side in this case, in most cases. Then that halter is going to, when that horse 
comes to the end of your lead, it's going to twist on his face. You want that fit just touching the hair on his head. And with a good fit right at the cheekbones, you look at the DVD that comes with it. It's going to say twist like a twist in your sock. And the horse is going to go, what? It doesn't hurt, but it's uncomfortable. So he's going to say, okay, I'm going to come off that. All right. That's if he ran into it, right? Or he walked into it in this case. Is you stopped. You closed your hand, stopped, and he should have stopped with his nose at your shoulder. But if you walked beyond it, he got that twist. So what you would do then to school him is now you pull back a little bit, which creates that um, twist, sock, yeah. that twisty sock even more. And he's going to back off that to get comfortable. As soon as he backs up, he feels and he puts that shoulder uh, nose at the shoulder. He feels that relief or that untwist. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, this is where you want me. OK, so that's that's if So you schooled back, I would call that. That's the term we use schooled back. Now, let's say you walk forward and the cue for him to go is you you begin to walk. Uh, and there's there's some issues with that that I, I can't do visually for you right now. But there are some triggers to to let the horse know that you want to move forward now. But let's just say he's got the idea you're supposed to move forward. But he says, oh, no, I don't feel like moving right now. Maybe you're walking towards a trailer. <laughs> yeah. And he says, I don't think I want to go that way. So what's this, this dually is going to do? So you're schooling again by walking forward. And if he doesn't come with you. Same thing in reverse. That halter twists and he says, uh, uh, maybe if I take a step forward, I'll get comfortable again. And then you you reward him. So we like to loosen that up. Maybe even in a case like that where he refused, he didn't just overstep and go, oops, sorry. He was really refusing. I like to step in front of them so they, they can kind of see you, but you're in a vulnerable spot too. And I rub them between the eyes and then breathe down and go, that's your reward. You see, we just, we just got it. We found a reward right there and then step to the, to the left of your horse again, the, you know, the, the side that you usually lead from. I would do this in reverse too. I would lead from the other side sometimes too. We really should. It's offside October. There you go. You're right. By the time this is out, it is offside October and then it's no stir up November after that. But that's another lesson. (laughs) But but that's what we we call schooling, where the horse knows in no uncertain terms that this is what you're expecting him to do. And it's a good bilateral agreement because nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets mad. Nobody gets excited. It's just the way you do it. Now, if if you've got a horse that's a little more sensitive and he's, you know, feeling it that day and you bring him out on your I say minimum 12 foot lead line um, because you're going to get in trouble if you're six and eight. I'm sorry, but I want 12 feet in my hands. I like a nice flat line. So a nice cotton core uh, flat line. You can hold on better than a round lead. This, I'm just throwing tips at you, Jen. And, them all in here. <laughs> and you come out of that that stall or enclosure that you've had the horse in and he's got his tail up over his back and he is, you know, mane is flowing and everything's going I want to have a little room for him to make a mistake. I don't know about anybody else, but that helps. And if he starts going sideways and he's doing the crab walk and he's jigging all over the place, then I want him to settle down. So, again, I'm going to close my hand and I'll probably do what we call the dually dance, which means I want to go forward. I want to go back. I want him to listen to me. I don't want him fooling around, um, you know, and being in a dangerous place across the yard. So. 
that's where you really get into getting a horse focused again. You know, I mean, if he if, if a horse is going by and he's all flighty, just wait and, you know, let him settle. But if it's something about where he just doesn't want to deal with whatever you're dealing with at that time and listen, then you got to get him focused. So schooling becomes really important on getting him to listen to your feet. You know, everybody says he who moves the feet controls the moment, right? Um, so if you can get their brains focused on, are you saying forward two steps, back three steps? What do you, what do you want me to do? Then they actually have something to do besides scream at the horses in the pasture next to them or something. So, right. And, uh, and that really, you know, they really, they want to behave, you know, maybe they've got a little excess energy, but that helps them focus and burn some of that energy towards focusing on that dually dance. Right. Um, they're, when they're doing the dance, they are using energy, but they're using yeah. it in a more focused fashion. Yeah, to back up actually takes, it's not a real natural thing for horses to back up. They don't naturally find themselves in a position to just, you know, hey, let's go a quarter of a mile in reverse. <laughs> no, That's interesting you bring that up because when you watch horses at play in the field <laughs> and they're playing lift tag, you'll see that they're sparring a little bit. It's very interesting because the horse that is in that particular moment, the aggressor, mm-hmm. he's winning the little lip tag battle. <laughs> the guy who's, quote, losing that battle is the one who takes the step backwards. And you can tell if you watch them carefully, they're doing everything, everything they can to not take a step back. They'll take a step yes. sideways. They'll go forward towards their opponent using air quotes right. here, but they don't <laughs> want to take the step back. And then if you watch carefully, the one that took the step back is usually the one who has been knocked down a peg and he'll make a circle yeah. around his little friend and come back at a different angle and then yeah. they'll spar again. So that's very interesting. The, it is you're, you're so true. Energy, you're encouraging focus, but you're also playing a little head game with him. Yep. Yeah. Because back, back is a, I don't want to say control because people, that has a bad connotation. Right. It yeah. really is a partnership. And in the partnership says, if you stay at my shoulder and we're just walking along and everybody's happy, we're doing good. You know, every, I'm not going to do something unfair to you. You're not going to do something unfair to me. So if they've stepped out of line, or let, let's use the trailer example again. Let's say, or or you just want to walk up a ramp, or you want to walk across a, a puddle, or something that you're asking them to do that's not unfair. And they say, no, you know, I really don't want to do that. I'd like to go around it. I'd like not, not, not to go in the trailer, or whatever. But the trailer is a good example because there's an end game, and everybody knows what it is. It's get inside the trailer. So, so to use that trailer example, now I would get out my. I like to have more line in my hand. Now, some women's hands are really small and they don't like to have 30, a 30 foot, like long line. You know, we, we, we have double line lung, lunging, but not single line lunging, but they're 30 feet. Um, if you don't have 30 feet in your hand, uh, okay, maybe 17 minimum, but get a lot of line in your hand because if you're walking up on that trailer and you're doing your dually dance and saying, let's, talk about the feet here and then you do the ask you finally have them where they're moving with you and you do the ask and you walk up that ramp and then let's say three steps into it they stop again all right so we're not quite there yet if you step one step down on that ramp you lose that's the game that <laughs> you so lost that is so key. they two, so know yeah i have two i can speak from experience because i have two previously bad loaders Mm-hmm. And that was so key for me to train myself to yeah. do that, to, okay, not giving up my foothold here, right. to allow that long line to, to feed out. Big. And 
it's not one of those things that instantly angels sing and there's a rainbow and it all gets better. <laughs> but wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> in, in very short order, there is a change in the horse when I say, oh, well, okay, you can move because otherwise you're going to pull me over. But my feet aren't moving, dude. <laughs> right. You can release that line. You don't lose points for releasing the line. In fact, they're, remember, walking backwards, not you. But yeah, if you do that, then they know, ooh, all I have to do is pull you back, you know, and they get that concept. But when you let them back off that line, if you have 30 feet in your hand, you know, they're not going to go that far. They can go back as much as they want. And then you just troll them back in again. And get back to work. Now, what I like to do, though, is if you can get them closed, let them express themselves, back up four or five steps like they're going to do, uh, and then start to troll them in. But what I like to do is then once that is established that you they didn't get away with it, then go back down there. Now back them up. That's work. And that's schooling with the dually. Backing them up is like, okay, we're back to where we were in the beginning, maybe with this yeah. dually dance again. And then you just... And you just so keep funny. coming at it. The horse, because it, it's so funny. Because if you're if you're consistent, watch the videos on the online university. If you're consistent with your body language, and you're consistent and fair with your aids, with your dually, mm-hmm. in very short order, you can see the whole horse's whole face go. Oh, would you just let me walk up to the ramp? <laughs> yeah, I want to get on the <laughs> ramp. Okay, <laughs> I'm so tired of this little it's dually like, dance. It's like this big sigh of resignation. Yeah. It is. It is. And, you know, and they realize that putting that maybe maybe it's the ramp sound under their feet. Maybe it feels funny or maybe it's just the day, you know, but whatever it is, it's like it's not that bad, you know, and you can see the relief. I mean, dad likes to say that they've been fighting demons. If it's a horse that he has on tour and they've been they've been riding it to the to the horse shows because they can't get it on the trailer. He says that horse has been fighting those demons of fear of, you know, unknown for who knows how long. And when you, you see them shed those demons and see them relax and start to lick and chew and the eye goes soft and the neck relaxes and the jaw relaxes, it's like an overcoming moment for them. It's joy. Literally, it's so cute when you finally get them in the trailer and turn them around. And how many times are we going to get them on the trailer and off again? At least 15 that day. I'm telling you, at least 15. Because why? Because then it is shed. They know it. You know it. It's all done. So don't just get them in there and crank down the <laughs> fat gates. Yeah. Don't say, I gotcha. You know, you want them to know that that really happened for real. And they, they will. So you go in there and you turn them around the first time. They will pop their head out and look like, anybody watching? Did you see that? I was amazing. <laughs> it's just like a little kid. You know, it's just so adorable. And then all the relaxation, everything. And then coming off again and just doing that little keyhole and coming back. And oh, I'm not so sure. Did that just happen? Yeah, it happened. We're going to do it again. You know, it's it's fun. It's just really fun to watch them be able to shed those. And is it going to happen overnight? No, by tomorrow, maybe you have to do this again. But people write us all the time saying, uh, I'm so afraid because once I get my horse in the trailer and I get him to the show or I get him to wherever I'm going, how am I going to get him back in the trailer? Well, if you've done that, you haven't done your work right for them. It's not fair. Right. You, you haven't practiced. Have, exactly. You haven't practiced yeah. enough at home and you haven't gone for 
field trips and practiced and set, you know, so there's no pressure about that. Take a friend so that you can have some, somebody maybe block for you or whatever it is if you do get stuck on that. But that's a field trip. It's not a horse show, you know, where you're in more pressure and stress and they know it. So yeah, yeah, get past all that and you'll have a happy horse for life. Go study it, be a good student, and your horse will appreciate it because they'll understand it. They'll recognize it. There we go. Well, I yeah. think uh, that was that was fun stuff. Thank you. I think Thanks. it's time for us to hear from our sponsor, and then it's on to our first guest, who is a good student of horsemanship. Your horse is your partner in sport, in leisure, and just in life. To keep him at his peak performance and optimal health, A solid nutritional foundation is key. Ideally, horses are able to graze fresh, growing grasses, which most closely mimic their natural diet. But that may not always be possible, and we may need to supply some of those missing ingredients in today's diets and provide more functional foods. One component of a horse's diet that is often underfed are omega-3 fatty acids. While more prevalent in fresh forages, harvested forages are lower in omega-3 fatty acids, due to their more advanced maturity. Obviously, grasses and legumes have to grow to a sufficient height in order to be harvested, while foraging patterns of horses show great preference for shorter, less mature plants. That's why modern horsemen and horsewomen trust Omega Horse Shine to provide a powerful, bountiful source of omega-3 fatty acids for their equine partners. Look for Omega Horse Shine from Omega Fields at your local tack and feed supplier Or you can find them online at omegafields.com. Elizabeth K. McCall is an author, journalist, and media consultant specializing in the horse industry, travel, and entertainment. She was the industry liaison for the acclaimed equestrian spectacle called Cavalia. Elizabeth's book, The Tao of Equus, exploring how horses guide us on our spiritual path can transform the way we see the world, interact with our environment, and handle challenges. Her passion for the horse-human bond and the world of Equus can be seen in countless articles written for wide-ranging outlets, including Cowboys and Indians, Los Angeles Times, Dressage Today, Arabian Horse World, and The Hollywood Reporter, many more. Based in Southern California, Elizabeth is a lifelong equestrian whose own Egyptian Arabian stallion, Rajalika, is uniquely and on request at Liberty Training. Well, welcome, Elizabeth K. McCall, and nice to have you for the first time on Horsemanship Radio. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Well, it was fun to meet you. We met at the, um, well, I don't know when we first met, but we re- met recently at the American Horse Publications Conference in um, just nice and cool Scottsdale, Arizona. It, no, it was really, really hot, wasn't it? I think it broke records or something. <laughs> yeah, and what what were you doing over there? You are representing, you're an author, a journalist, media, as we introduced you, but um, what, what is your... What are what do you consider yourself the most? Are you more of a trainer, more of a horse trainer, or more of a a blogger and a writer? Well, I actually, don't blog that much. Um, I've been involved as a journalist and both a publicist, kind of go on both sides of the media fence and do marketing and and consulting too in terms of promotions uh, for quite a while. I mean, I've been a lifelong horse person, so I mean that's always been a part of my life, and it's taken me many interesting directions over the years. Um, help me get jobs, help me decide on my college, um, you name it, um, even 
provided the beginning of my master's thesis. Somebody mm-hmm. I happened to talk to that was doing wagon trains in Texas. Um, and it was the time when event marketing was really taking off. And I used that as the basis of the thesis. How fun. And wh- what was the title of your thesis? It was event marketing. Event marketing. Just It was I that broad I then. Remember. Yeah. <laughs> I bumped into it in a box recently. I'm going, oh, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's like an industry term now. So that's pretty cool. Um, so you're a horse industry liaison. Uh, you were for Cavalia, I know. And um, I've always been curious. So what when you get to write and do things in the marketing world for Cavalia, which a lot of people we should we should explain what Cavalia is. What is a horse industry liaison? Well, that was something that I kind of created for myself. And I think it's interesting to know, at the time that Cavalia started, people couldn't even pronounce it. I yes. had already been writing as a journalist extensively on horses and film and TV and also live spectacles. And I'd been doing a lot of traveling to France in particular um, and doing horse treks over there, written about some equestrian spectacles there. Uh, there was another spectacle in the U.S. Um, called uh, Cheval Teatre before that that another co-founder of Cirque du Soleil started that went for a while. And then I also, when this other French troupe came to the U.S. called Zingaro, I ended up doing some PR for them because on their first West Coast appearance, and that was their only one too. But it was interesting. At that time, people tended to like one or the other, and uh, there was a period then where nothing happened, but I was actually landed a book deal which was really neat. I'd written a story about Wayne Newton's Arabians. I'd been in Las Vegas for a while and um, had an interest in Arabians anyway and did a nice story. And I, some um, writing group I'd been involved with said, you know, you really need to go to this book expo in America. And it's, it's a national type of a thing that travels to different cities every year. And I thought, well, this would be a great place to pitch a, a book, which people have been pushing me. You ought to be doing a book. And I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> All I have was my Wayne Newton article. And I happened to be chatting with a publisher of certain books, and they were mainly mainstream. I think they was looking for anybody with a horse title in there. Mm-hmm. And I just left off the copy of the article, and a couple of days later I got a call, and they go, we're looking for an author. And I go, oh, that's nice. And they said, send us some ideas. And I was very, very busy writing. I was writing for a fair amount of mainstream publications at the time. USA Weekend when it used to exist, um, which was, I had some great assignments from them and, and others and horse publications also. And anyway, they called me back a couple weeks later. You know, we're trying to decide on our author. Can't you hurry up? <laughs> when that I stayed up and made the, you know, wrote out some ideas. And anyway, I had a book deal within a couple weeks. And it's one of those things. Sometimes, you know, when you, you get tapped on the shoulder and you get tapped on the shoulder and you know you need to do something and then it lands in your lap. It's like, okay, now's the time. And it was really in the process of writing that book that uh, someone else who I'd known for some time named Mark Miller, who at the time owned Arabian Nights down in Orlando, Florida, which was a dinner attraction with horses. Huh? It went on for actually 26 years. And wow. that, anybody who's involved in equestrian entertainment passed through there at one time or another. And several different times I worked for him on different PR projects and things. And uh, anyway, I called him up trying to track down some information for this book because, of course, everything started going every which way except what I thought. Yeah. You know, and the book actually happened to be called The Dow of Horses. And I thought, oh, no, there's another book that's a similar title. But the mm-hmm. publisher had already chosen the title. So I went along with him and I just oh, added okay. Horses Guide Us on Our Spiritual Path to it. And, um, you know, ended up thinking, well, I, I certainly, this dovetails with a lot of things I've done. You know, how can, you know, had everybody in mind that I wanted to interview, and of course nobody said what I wanted them to say. So in the search for more information, I ended up reconnecting with Mark. He said, oh, 
Fred Magley are up in Canada doing this show with this this guy from Cirque du Soleil, and I'm going, no, oh, no, it that one went bankrupt, and they go, no, 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 they're up there, and this is Frederick Pignon and Magley Delgado, oh, who were the original stars of Cavalia. I had actually met them once. Um, they had been kind of discovered, at least in terms of North America, um, by the owner's um, previous wife, and he. Had, I can't remember his wife at the time, but they had brought them in and had them doing periodic consulting at Arabian Nights. And mm-hmm. they barely spoke any English then. And this was pre, way pre Cavalia. And they had been in Central America. He's so cute. They, does he need to speak English? I don't know. You know, I've only seen him on a beach. <laughs> they do now. I know. You know, that's the, and, and I really, equestrian spectacles, I think, are my passion. And that's one of those things where you think, you know, you talk about the universal language of horses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've traveled to different countries where I, I don't necessarily have trouble communicating with the humans, but you can get on back back of a horse mm-hmm. and you've got the language, you know, and you can also okay. have a, a companionship and a camaraderie with the people just because of sharing that experience with horses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in terms of when you get to the spectacles, I, I think they're able to reach people without a language. I mean, that's, you know, it's not, they're mm-hmm. not out there saying things. I mean, when you right. get to dinner attractions, that's different. They did have a script at Arabian Nights. And it was quite clever, and they that changed from time to time over the years. But anyway, that long, winding road led me up back up, too. So I called the phone number, and I also talked to this man who was named Norman Latorell, who was an, one of the original co-founders of Cirque du Soleil, who had put a horse in it. Uh, he was no longer with them, but he was doing a lot of uh, different spectacles and extravaganzas, and one of them he happened to just kind of put a horse in, and the horse was grabbing all the attention, and he thought, <laughs> hmm, might be a good idea. And <laughs> Really interesting series of events, you know. Somebody up there is guiding the show, you're sure, when you, you find out about some of these things that just happen where people bump into each other. And he did meet up with Frederick Pignon and Magli Delgado, and they did uh, go to Canada and at that time were creating the spectacle that became Cavalia. Wow. And at the time, I remember interviewing him, and I had some really good interviews from Frederick and Magli and also from Norman. And I really debated, am I going to put this in this book or not? Because the book wasn't going to come out for a year. I thought, what if this thing tanks? And there I've got something <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. in the book. I really debated, and I just kind of went with my, I guess, the old gut feeling. And I put it in, and I had also told them, you know, if you ever come to the U.S., I could probably help you. And um, they really kind of thought their mainstream, their uh, the mainstream public was their main audience. They really it initially didn't think that the horse industry was going to be that strong of a draw. Hmm. But quite honestly, the horse industry turned into their frequent flyers. Those are the ones. Yeah, that, um, exactly. Endless times. Bring people. We even had people that were, I remember uh, at one point I went on tour with the show, too. I started doing, you know, it's since they didn't have anybody. I mean, it was a new show. They didn't have anybody in mind. They had a tour publicist, and they also hired mainstream PR agencies in each city. But, you know, when they, they didn't have anybody in mind for my role, and I kind of created it. But I had really diverse skills, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, you work as horses. a freelance journalist, you have to be able to not only pitch the story and get, a, <laughs> get an mm-hmm. interest in editor or, or some kind of media outlet with the same skill that a good PR person does, but then you have to be able to produce the quality of a story in written form or, or however you're going to communicate it. So they're going to go, yeah, we want to use this, you know, and pay you for it, ideally. Yeah, <laughs> um, that that does help too. 
<laughs> Keeps you coming. You're, you're working another job by day and, and you know, doing this by night mm-hmm. on weekends. Um, and a lot of bloggers and people start their career that way. There are all kinds of ways to start a career. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I really, and, and because I'd done so many things too, um, I had worked in the airline industry initially after college, but I was always involved with horses. So I really always. knew a lot of the links with travel and horses and, you know, and my writing career familiar with different associations, just things from writing about movies. The first thing an association is going to want to know if you say, oh, there's a quarter horse in the film is, is it registered? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. there I am combing through all the horse's papers to see what, what was registered in the show and not to look for additional things. So important. Yeah. Doesn't it drive parties. you crazy when you see the, w- when somebody has done work that doesn't show that uh, research that, you know, I, I think one of uh, one of the things I hear the most are like fake Winnie's in a movie, but, but even just breeds and, and <laughs> right. You know, I mean, that's, that drives everybody oh, crazy. Oh yeah. But, they like the fake Winnie's. <laughs> like the fake Winnie's. But um, and before we get away from Cavalia too, I'm dying to know what's the backstage of Cavalia like? I mean, we horse lovers want to know. Yeah, I, I, honestly, yeah. I think it's probably my favorite part uh, of being involved with that show. And it was, you know, a 24 seven kind of a thing. I was, we had one day off a week. Uh, except in between cities. And I worked for about a year from L.A., even though it was different cities and usually came for the premieres in different locations. And then sometimes more. They were in Southern California a fair amount the first year. And then I went on tour. But my favorite part of the show was backstage. It just, you know, it's, you know, everything from the artists warming up, the horses warming up, the grooming, the braiding of the manes, the unbraiding of the manes, because a lot of times they do that to keep, make sure that they weren't getting torn up or clean or, um, it just, I just love the, I just love the feel. I love the atmosphere. I love that there's a very creative and horsey vibe back there. Um, and it's very relaxed and organized and yet very, you know, the second somebody's on, they're on, you know, one of the things that was really interesting for me, um, the original Cavalia had one music studio with live music up above the stage, uh, the current show that's touring in the U S now. Um, it has two actually, and I haven't been up in those, but I remember the first time I went upstairs and so many of the artists were really young. (laughs) Some of the acrobats were like straight out of Montreal circus school and and the musicians too. Uh, Most of them I think were from Montreal, at least originally in the original show and going up in their little box of it. I mean, they're playing live music and the music directors up there on keyboard. They're all watching. They got their headphones on and he's also the director. And these people, I mean, they had to adapt on the spot. If somebody, if a horse doesn't, you know, come in, especially if it's at liberty and doesn't decide it's going to make another round on something or <laughs> anything goes off, off cue or off the normal way of doing it on the spot. And to see that happen right there, I just found it fascinating. Plus their perspective up there, you know, to be watching what's going on down below them is fascinating. I mean, I, you know, that kind of thing. I love backstage and I, I find really the inner workings of a lot of things are sometimes the most fascinating. Oh, I agree. I just got chills thinking about that because there is nothing like a live show in any case. And then you throw animals in there, right? Which is totally unpredictable. And, um, you know, they, they say the most unpredictable thing is working with actors and animals. <laughs> so there you go. You've got the creative types too. But I, I'm glad to hear that you were happy as a horse 
person too, happy with the way they um, handled the horses and everything too. Uh, I hear peace and, and authenticity in your voice. So, um, no, it absolutely. Cool. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't words only. It was it was absolutely authentic. I mean, and and particularly when you have people that are lifelong horse people, breeders, trainers, and their families had been out in the public. Um, you know, the the well being of the horses was paramount. You know, they always had turnouts. There were always turnouts created, even in downtown cities. So mm. the horses were taken out. There were maximum shows they could do. Um, there were, I mean, even when you get to horses in film and you see the kind of rules that really they're supposed to adhere by, and if they've got the film and TV unit on set to monitor that, which um, is another story, but they really do. I mean, a lot of people would be hard-pressed to meet the demand meet an equal level of um, standards in mm-hmm. a lot of the world. Good. Um, the way Good. in terms of breaks, how long they can do something, somebody's saying that's enough, it's too hot, it's too, you know, um, the footing okay. is not correct. I mean, they actually, on a film set, a lot of times, when they're, if they're going through water, you've got a rep out there checking to see the footing underneath the water. You know, what's mm-hmm. under there? Are there rocks? Are there, is there something else under there? Is there a whole thing that a lot of times you might not necessarily be doing yourself if you're out on a trail? Mm-hmm. You know, we're winging it. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I think that particularly with Cavalia, it was, I mean, just something even in your back, you know, and then we had a traveling chef, you know, and the food was really good. Oh, French food. Maybe <laughs> no, French food. It was, a, it was yeah, from Quebec, yes, but, the, you know, French was the main language of that show. Mm-hmm. And, um, Do you, you speak know, French? Most of the people spoke English a little bit. I had spoken French in high school. I was starting to dream in France when I, in French when I, came back from tour yeah. and it was uh, just know, about you, like you, my spoken French. <laughs> like, you you okay. know, you've been on a tour a while, so that's cool. That's cool. Well, it's good to hear. That encourages people to, uh, to check out Cavalli when it comes to town. Cause I do love, uh, supporting and endorsing something that is good. And, uh, and that's where we want the industry to go. We, we don't want horses to go away. We, we want them relevant and, and, uh, you know, some people think that that's, using them for entertainment is a bad thing but to me those are the extreme edges and and i think keeping people enthusiastic about horses is probably the point do you agree yeah i do and i think also the wonderful thing about those shows and the thing i got to see because i usually was there every single night the show was going and i would usually spend some of the time you know in watching the show or the people or meeting somebody i always met all the equestrian vips um or backstage or something is you see the impact it had on people. And that kind of a show was able to introduce a lot of people who never ever would be going along with their friend or spouse to go on a, you know, a trail ride or go to, to go over and watch a horse competition or even horse clinic. And they came to that and they left moved. I mean, I yeah. saw even seasoned journalists with tears in their, they didn't want to go. You go, you know, the stars really need to go, eat dinner now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they need to go home, <laughs> you know, they need to go finish up and take their costumes off and the people didn't want to leave. It um, was that kind of a, an impact on people. Nice. And it was not just horse equine, it was the mainstream people too. And I, th- I think probably more people were introduced to horses from that show and continue to be mm-hmm. than probably any other single event. I mean, you look yeah. at the stands most of the horse shows. And yet that normally every show was absolutely packed. Fact, yeah, sold out. Too. And it's it continues to be, and I, and that's that's something that I know you had um, Christy from Time to Ride uh, mm-hmm. on talking Schulte, about Christy their Schulte. effort to, 
you know, reach out and introduce new people to horses. I mean, you know, it's it's important to all of us for the continued health of our horse industry to find interesting ways to give people a first-time horse experience. And sometimes just the fact that they're going, oh, I saw that. Wow, it's incredible. Exactly. Exactly. Well, let's talk about your horse a little bit. So you've got, you've got, you know, this is, this is the, where the rubber meets the road. You've got your own Egyptian Arabian stallion, Rajalika. Say it for, right for me. Got it. Rajalika. Yeah, Rajalika. There we go. My own version of, of his registered name, but that's exactly how it looked on the papers. It's beautiful. Um, it's and beautiful. Always, and he was bred at a very um, well-known Egyptian Arabian farm whose owner is the president of the Pyramid Society. But yeah, it was another one of those things. I was actually kind of, a, I'd come home from Cavalia and I was thought I was going to go to France and write a book for somebody. And I was kind of taking a gap month and doing something. And I really had no interest in getting a horse at that time. I was getting ready to leave as soon as I finished a project and go to this other thing. And anyway, here landed this horse. It was one of these things that sometimes, again, something taps you on the shoulder and you get this feeling, I really should do this. I don't know why it doesn't make sense. But anyway, I decided to go ahead and um, get him overnight, <laughs> and, and little did I, lo and behold, and yeah. <laughs> um, who would have ever guessed I had a horse that he really will speak on request. He understands it, and he started this. He had a lot of trust issues when I got him. He had he? Um, mm-hmm. been basically born and bred and slept to be in the competitive show world as a halter horse. and Which is tough in the, in, in the industry, in Arabian industry, I think. A halter would be not what I would choose for my horse in that industry. I so he becomes, he becomes, he becomes, <laughs> right, he didn't choose, did he? <laughs> well, I, I'm glad he became your spokes horse. So, yeah, tell us about his See, vocal. It's interesting. Bar. I'm going, oh, well, you know, I'll be ready. I'll be ready to go compete in, a, you know, six months or something. I'll give it six months because I thought I'd probably have to wait that long to leave the U.S. And, and then, lo and behold, this horse started. It wasn't just the normal, I see you're at the barn. Hello, is it time to eat kind of thing. It, it kept evolving. And then I just kind of would get these ideas. And I thought, I wonder if he'll, I started saying, uh, you know, Rajalika speak. And, of course, I was still saying uh, this name that looked like on the papers to me. And uh, he yeah. started responding. But then I started hiding. I really did. I'd go hide somewhere and pop yeah. out again and see if it happened again. And he did. Yeah. And and I wasn't ever sure if it was going to continue when I moved. I mean, I'm, I'm never sure. I mean, it's something like that. And I've written about horses and film and entertainment. Honestly, was a massive Mr. Ed fan all my life. And yeah. when I came back to Valia, it actually kind of, I used to, I was still on this really extreme showtime where you, you know, normally, you know, by the time you get done with the show and you get back to where you're staying and you finally get around to going to sleep, it's pretty late at night. So when I was back Back home, I, I was still in the same time zone. And I used to watch Mr. Ed DVDs, you know, <laughs> one after the other, you know. And I go, oh, it's interesting. But then I started noticing all these tricks that were used in yeah. different scenes and different, you know, the same trick, but it was effective in different kinds of scenes. It was interesting, different perspective. But who would have guessed that um, I had this horse that started this talking thing? And as it and as time continued, I mean, he grasped the concept. I mean, it's. It's continued to evolve at this point, and it's kind of funny. Sometimes he still sounds like a horse, but he totally understands the concept, and now it sounds like me going, huh, huh, and he he really Uh, does. He sort of emulates what you're doing. And I'm going, oh, great, is that really how I 
Yeah. You better not teach him bad words. That's all I can say. <laughs> I know. So I thought that's why we better not do it at his stall. He's going to start going, huh, huh. <laughs> and he really, he will work it sometimes. And it just, especially if I'm not playing, paying attention to him. And it just, you know, people noticed it actually. And they were saying it for a long time. I didn't believe it. They're going, you know, he's talking to you. Like, he's talking right. to you. You, you no, have some things really what? Eyes yeah. focused, intent, and making the sound and waiting for the reaction, which so, usually came with his his knicker maker at the time. <laughs> was feeding. Yeah, <laughs> he was a big fan of those. Treats. Um, um, yeah, so so people should go to YouTube and and put in um, I don't know Arabian talking horse. I think is how I found it. Oh, well, there are a few <laughs> things in there. Yeah, I've got some more that I keep meaning to do more, and I will. You know, he's he's extremely intelligent. I mean, he's put together pretty nicely too, but. I've done some liberty work with him and other things. I mean, but he just grasps everything so quickly. I taught him that. I think I looked at, I don't know if you know, Alan Pogue, but he had this yes. book about strict training. I have, uh, and actually I first heard him through somebody I met on tour with Cavalia, one of these winding roads, some people I'd met up in Canada. Um, but, you know, I was looking at this thing about how Alan was teaching horses to pick up a hat or something, and I went from <laughs> step one to finished, I think, in about an hour or out of Ooh, that. Yeah, he he's will smart. pick up a hat like a Frisbee. Now I can throw <laughs> the thing, and he goes and gets it and brings the thing back. And he's so cute. Quite, so quite cute. Ara- Arabians are really smart. Not to, you oh. know, yeah, Mustangs and everything else too, but Arabians as a rule are really smart. It's sometimes good news and bad news. But we should explain to our young listeners, Mr. Ed. So Mr. Ed, when we were growing up, we're probably close enough. That's age. right. I know. Nobody knows who he is anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alan Young was an actor who you met later on in life. Um who was the show host, uh, I guess you can call it that, or Mr. Ed's owner, or maybe Mr. Ed owned Alan. I'm not sure because he seemed smarter than than Alan on the show. But uh, Mr. Ed was a talking horse and um, pretty much lived with, with Alan. Uh, what, what was his name on the show? Alan Young's name was? Wilbur. Wilbur. That's it. Wilbur. Wilbur. <laughs> Wilbur. He was Wilbur. And yeah, he was an architect. And I mean, it's really kind of like a flashback to his, Mr. Ed's on YouTube now. And it's really funny because oh, you can look it. in there and it's like, did women really act like that? Nah. <laughs> No, oh my God! They're running around in dresses and what? <laughs> all day long, all dressed makeup. up like they're going yeah. out somewhere no and fixing anyway. lunch. <laughs> it's just—it's yeah. it's a fascinating <laughs> statement on that era. Um, yeah. But it also, you know, he was—I had the great pleasure of interviewing him a couple of times and meeting him. But you know, the story was that Wilbur had his—you know—an architect. He had his office in the barn, and this horse decided he was the only one who was going to talk there, but. There were, it was really clever, well-written, and there was a book that Alan Young put out, I guess Mr. Ed and Me or something like that. It's probably on Amazon, and it's it's fascinating, all the details on how they even funded the show, and, you know, the networks passed on it, and they ended up getting, I think it was some kind of a car, or was it something called a Studebaker or something that the dealers ended up putting money up for doing it, and the thing ended up with a bigger viewership than a standard um, uh, network. Anyway, he has quite a bit of information there, but the people that were involved in that show were the who's who of the era Mm. uh, all the way throughout television. See, I mean, I wish Hollywood would recognize that we horse lovers love our horse shows, horse movies, horse uh, extravaganzas, anything, and we will support them if they just do it right. Um, So we've got to get on the line with some of these Hollywood types and uh, put out some more secretariats and sea biscuits, and, and you know we'll support them. They're they're fantastic stories, and they're real because horses can't lie. We all know that. They 
sure don't. Oh, I'm not sure what mine says sometimes. <laughs> but it, just, <laughs> but it, is, it is really unusual. I mean, when I think, what would be the chances, though, that some basically almost a fluke, but listening to some kind of a, you know, a voice inside my head or something that said, you really should do this. You'll be sorry if you don't. And it was one of these things I was going to think about it for a week. And sometimes, you know, there are these doors that open in life. And sometimes you have to almost beat them with a stick to get them to close because it's like, you're going to do this. <laughs> and sometimes it's just for a fleeting second, you have a chance that something's going to all work out. And I walked through that all work out door with him. I did with Cavalier too, in some ways, probably more than once. Um, and I said, well, we'll just, I'll go for it. And, um, but I did for him and it's continued to, the, even the people that I've been around, I've been around some extraordinary horsemen worldwide. Um, he's just added another dimension. Mm. And I made the point of spending every day with him. Yeah. I'm glad I, and I, and I, you know, I think you must with your breadth of experience, you must have lots of stories and I would love for you to come back and share a story or two with us again. Um, and some of these things that you've contributed to the Cowboys and Indians and the Los Angeles times and some of these storied papers. Um, I'd like to know what you wrote about. Would you come back again? I would love to. Well, thank my you. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, I loved our initial voyage. It was really fun. And uh, I thank you so much for what you've done to contribute to the horse industry. Hi, Carol Herter here, president of Cavallo, home of the world's most trusted and popular hoof boots. You know, one of the most interesting parts of what I do is the many horsey stories I get to hear. Most of them are really uplifting. Some are stories of challenges, and a few are downright sad. Recently, a wonderful woman took the time to approach us at a show to share a story about her horse who went down in quicksand. It started out as a really scary story. We were holding our breaths, waiting for the outcome, and it turned out wonderful. They winched the horse out relatively unscathed, albeit, you know, a little traumatized, and everyone standing around were super amazed that he still had his cavallo hoof boots on. Scary story with a good ending. Another testament to cavallo. If you don't have a pair for your horse, it's time. Cavallos are easy to put on, easy to take off when you want to take them off, and they stay on. They stay on in all terrain. Cavallo, the world's most trusted hoof boots. One of the most distinguished women in polo today is Santa Barbara's own Doreen Layden. Doreen has served on the boards and leadership of many Southern California nonprofit organizations like the Santa Barbara Museum of Art, the National Charity League, the First Ladies of the Dream Foundation, and the 100 Committee of Girls Incorporated of Greater Santa Barbara. But it's the polo community that holds a special place in her heart. Well, welcome, Doreen Layden. I'm so excited to have you on the show. We've had very few polo aficionados, so I'm really happy to have you on. And and uh, please say hi for the people so we know that you uh, you exist. We just read your bio, and it's amazing. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, I want to thank you for inviting me to the show today, and it's an honor to talk with you. Goodness, no, Doreen, you have such a storied career. It's an honor for us. I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you got here to be one of the top polo women in the in the, the legacy of the discipline. But I wanted to know, first off, I think everybody wants to know, is the sport of polo gaining women right now? 
Yes, it is at a very fast rate. And uh, the United States Polo Association, or the USPA, uh, has uh, approximately 5,000 people uh, across the country. And I'd say probably 50% at this point are women members. Wow, 50%? Yes. Yes, the sport has really been attracting a lot of women recently, and a lot of women uh, come into the sport of polo from other uh, equitation sports Mm. like hunter-jumper, cutting of horses, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the women are, you know, pretty good uh, equestrians when they come in to learn the game of polo. Gotcha. So you're actually recruiting from other disciplines. Very smart. Very smart. And it and yes. that's kind of how you got into this in the beginning. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Um, at the time, I was um, 17, and uh, I met my, uh, my husband, Joel. And uh, we were just, um, you know, enjoying courses over at the Equestrian Center in Burbank. And we would go uh, for trail rides, nothing, you know, uh, serious at the time. And, um, and then uh, when we were married and uh, in our early 20s, and this was back in the early 70s, uh, he came home one day and he said, you know, I've got this great idea uh, of something that we could do together that's very unique and he presented the idea of going to Foxfield, which is a uh, English writing academy where we got our foundation. And from there, we learned how to jump and uh, do some dressage. And uh, I went on to do eventing and uh, uh, showing at that time. At Foxfield, and, at this writing uh, academy. Uh-huh. Yes, it's a wonderful place, and in fact, um, uh, decades later, when we had children, they uh, kind of followed suit, and they went off to summer camp there every summer and um, honed their riding skills, which later took them on into polo as well. That's awesome, and so you've actually become mentors for the next generation too, because you're you're very influential in this. I, I'm trying to get people to picture this now. Take away the excuses. Here is Joel, your husband, a corporate attorney in Century City, and if anybody knows what that looks like, it's picture sort of Los Angeles versions of Manhattan <laughs> is is Pacific, and the Pacific Palisades where you live is right there where. Um, you know, a lot of it's a lot of movers and shakers in the movie industry and industry period, and it, it's not a horse horsey area per se. I mean, they're pockets, but really, um, for you to grow out of that and and morph your life around horses takes a bit of an effort, doesn't it? Yes, it's a real commitment, but uh, something that just kind of gradually came into uh, you know our lives. And uh, as I said, Joel was doing the hunter-jumper with me, and then he decided that uh, he wanted something a little bit more uh, with adrenaline, and he (laughs) started off with uh, taking lessons from Sue Sally Hale. 
Yeah. And Sue Sally was one of the first um, American women polo players, and she was over at uh, Will Rogers. And so Joel, um, at the time, we were living in the San Fernando Valley where near where her farm was, and every morning he'd get up at the crack of dawn and uh, drive out to Sue Sally's uh, place, and she started him off, um, even though he knew how to ride, um, mounted on one horse, and, you know, he was uh, just riding that particular horse for a month. And then gradually, over the next few months, even before he got a mallet in hand, mm. she was having him um, riding with uh, one horse uh, ponying on one side and another horse ponying on the other side mm. to get balance. And then adding um, two horses and two horses to pony uh, while he was riding uh, and mounted on his horse. And then things just developed from there, and he started playing polo in the uh, early 1980s down at um, El Dorado Polo Club. And at that time, it was a little difficult for us because on the weekends, I was still doing hunter-jumper, and I was off to shows one place, and he was somewhere else uh, playing polo. (laughs) And so at one point, uh, when we ended up uh, being awarded uh, the contract at Will Rogers State Park and becoming the business partners of the state of California at yeah. that location, yeah. <laughs> we were then able to bring our lives together, and I started playing polo, and uh, then we were able to spend our weekends together instead of apart. So it made perfect sense. <laughs> it did. It did. So you you got the contract with the state itself at the Will Ro- Will Rogers State Historic Park is what it is uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains there above Palisades. So you got the contract, and I think I read somewhere what was eighty four to ninety four. So like ten years you were partners with the state of California. Is that right? Exactly. exactly. That's amazing. That's amazing. And at the same time, I know you were you had children. You were going through life, and you formed. Nicoma, am I saying that right? The team moniker? Tell us a little bit about that. It's very cool. Uh, Nicoma is an acronym, and we have three children, Nicole, Matthew, and Courtney. And we took the first two letters of each of their names. So uh, the Nicoma, the N-I would be for Nicole, and the M-A, which would be for Matthew, and the C-O for Courtney. And that became our team name. Initially, my children were going to a private school, and uh, we had told them, if anyone other than us ever picks you up, if it's safe to go with them if they give you the secret word. And so that secret word became our polo team name which we used uh, later on for all of our tournaments and so forth. That's what I love about polo, too, that it's such a team sport and it's so fun. But for those people who uh, might be listeners who don't know that much about polo, tell us what attracted you to polo, I, besides the story and working it to be your family advantage. But um, what is it that people might find attractive about polo? Oh, my God, there's so many things. Um, First of all, there's really nothing like the sport because amateurs are able to 
play uh, on the grass field with professionals that are hired, and uh, you're playing alongside of them um, on magnificent courses that are trained for the sport, and you're going uh, sometimes upwards to 35 miles an hour on grass field, hearing the uh, horse's hoofs on the grass, seeing the ball flying in the air, and, um, you know, you're playing a game which is, they've um, equated to horsemanship uh, and um, chess on horseback. Yeah. Because there's a mm-hmm. lot of strategy, strategy involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, is it, I think it's mentally stimulating as a, a, a passion, as a sport. Is it mentally stimulating, you think, for the horses too? How much do they understand that you're moving the ball around out there? Uh, you know, the horses, uh, when they're being trained for polo and they're initially purchased, uh, the, uh, the grooms will take them and weed them out, the ones that will be uh, usable for the sport and those that are not. Mm-hmm. And um, what happens is, is that they get on them and they start stick and balling them on the uh, grass or in the arena and they make sure that the horses are not afraid of the mallet uh, and uh, the ball and so forth. And the horses get so um, uh, invigorated and love the sport so much that they end up where uh, many times you'll be going to a ball, taking a shot, and if you back the ball, they know that they have to turn. Mm-hmm. And so they become your partner in the sport. And, you know, as you know yourself, being a horsewoman, that mm-hmm. the fact is, is that it's a clear relationship between the horse and the rider. Mm-hmm. And I'd say probably 75% of the polo game is the athleticism and speed and knowledge of the horse itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what's a good uh, length of time that a horse can compete like that? Is it is it over number of years, or is it like racing industry? It's only got a few good years in them, or uh, no? You know, they uh, usually um, a lot of the uh, race horses that um, come off the track are used for polo because they're thoroughbreds. And the reason that we use thoroughbreds is because of the heart and lung capacity of Mm -hmm. these athletes. Mm -hmm. And on a polo field, um, it's like nine football fields, uh, if you equate it to uh, football. Mm -hmm. Uh, The horses have to run uh, the length of the field, stop, and turn. So they have to be in very good shape, Mm -hmm. uh, athletes in their own right. And, and they uh, get relief, though, too. Don't you have several horses that you would use during the match play? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, uh, most people have at least uh, eight horses uh, per game. Mm-hmm. And uh, the horses are brought to the field before the game, and um, they're waiting on the tie racks, uh, already um, tacked up, ready to go. And um, any horses that are um, not feeling well that day or a little lame, those are left at the barn to uh, recover. We never use horses that aren't uh, in tip-top shape. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and usually use one horse per chucker um, or period of the game. There are six chuckers a game, okay. and you end up where you can change horses, but um, that's done on the player's own individual time if you leave the, the field. Got it. Well, yeah, good. Thank you for that primer for those of us who are just new to, to, we know what it looks like. It's gorgeous out there. You know, they've got gorgeous people riding gorgeous horses in a gorgeous setting <laughs> in Santa Barbara's, especially you, you invited yeah. us just recently to that. Um, but sometimes we don't know what happens behind the scenes too. And I think this polo pioneer, Sally, Sue, Sally Hale, um, because we've lost her this last year to cancer, I believe. Is that right? Um, well, Is we it? lost um, uh, Sue Sally a few years ago. Okay. Um, her daughter, Sunny, who was a professional woman player and won many uh, high-ranked tournaments, um, she was the one that we uh, lost, lost uh, this cancer. year. That's yes, right. At a very That's... young age. It was very unfortunate. And mm-hmm. she will dearly be missed, but mm-hmm. she did made huge inroads for um, the sport of polo, especially women in polo. Yeah. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about how does Sue Sally Hale, who was a mentor to you, or at least encouraged you, um, mm-hmm. how does she um, shape polo, do you think? Um, because I, from what I understand, really, it's, it's not a male or a female sport necessarily. If you're strong enough, you get to do it. There isn't just, there's no exclusivity um, to that for male and female. Is that right? Correct. So how did Correct. Sue Sally, yeah, did Sue Sally Hale um, approach this as a, gosh, I'd like to get more women in it? Or did she say, I'd like more, I'd like better players out there? You know, I think when she, at the time that she got into the sport, she was um, interested in playing and enjoying the sport. And I know that at that time, uh, polo was basically for men. And she was uh, playing at Will Rogers. And in those days, um, it was usually men that took to the field and not women. So she would um, kind of camouflage the fact that she was a woman by, uh, you know, wearing a bra that would flatten her breasts, uh, (laughs) drawing a little mustache on, putting her hair up in her helmet. Yes, yes. And and then, you know, as the sport developed and, um, you know, a few more women uh, got into it and it was acceptable... Uh, then, you know, she didn't have to hide her gender any longer. But, um, you know, she had some amazing experiences that she would share with all of us. And she was just a delight. And she got to be, uh, to have a two-goal handicap uh, when uh, that was a difficult thing for women to achieve. Yeah. Well, I read... uh in an article on you that you said, when you, when I ride out to the field to play, I didn't go as a woman, but as a member of the team with a job to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a philosophy. I think that, um, most a type personalities have, which is me included. And, uh, the sport is such, unless you're playing, uh, a women's tournament, uh, when you go out onto the field, um, you're going as a member of the team, and 
on this, the grass, uh, there are four uh, polo players on each team. And you are not uh, given the position on the team due to your gender, mm. uh, but because of your handicap and what you can do to help your team offensively, defensively, and so forth. And going with the philosophy that I was um, uh, explaining to you uh, makes it where the team can be more fluid and be more successful on the field. Mm -hmm. So no excuses, no headaches, backaches, <laughs> drinking the night before. You yeah, still PMS. Because you have a job to do. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. And that's why I love it that you got your children involved in this as well. They've become good players, um, but they're talented in other areas, too. You have a well-rounded family and they're delightful. It was nice to Thank meet them all, so too. I, I, there was one thing that um, I heard quoted, too, that Winston Churchill once said that a polo handicap is a passport to the world um, and that that, that resonated so with your family. Tell us, tell us at least a, one good story about opening a, a, a passport to the world for you guys? Um, you know, we have found that uh, wherever we travel, uh, whether it's domestically or um, internationally, polo, um, like other equitation sports, is such a small community and most people know one another. And if you don't actually know the other person, you know other people mm -hmm. that know them. So there's that commonality. And we found that whether we travel to Argentina to the uh, Open in Palermo, or we're somewhere in the United States or abroad in Europe, you, you go to places where the polo players are, and it, you have such a warm reception. For us, um, back in the early 90s, our son Matthew, who was a, uh, able to achieve uh, a four-goal ha handicap, which mm. is rare for an amateur, he was selected uh, along with uh, Joe Wayne Berry, the son of a very legendary American player. Uh, they were selected with uh, three other boys, to uh, represent the United States uh, all around uh, England. And mm -hmm. my husband and I took the boys and our daughters, and we chaperoned the boys traveling around from club to club. And arrangements were made for us uh, by Dr. Um, uh, John Wright, who uh, was appointed by the Queen to be in charge of the polo cl uh, Pony Club. So we traveled to England, and the English were so kind. They um, provided horses for us, set up the games. Uh, there were most times where we were staying at these magnificent um, old estates throughout England, and um, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, sport as well as cultural exchange. Mm -hmm. And going back to St. Churchill, this is the type of relationships and friendships through the sport that have been able to be developed uh, over the years that polo has been so popular. We also entertained the English team um, the following year 
when the English accepted a invitation from the Americans to come to Santa Barbara. And uh, at the time, we were living at a ranch in Santa Inez, and uh, we had the boys and uh, their parents staying with us, and they would play polo in Santa Barbara at the club, and in the evenings, we would have a state dining where... Uh, everyone would come to the table and uh, we would talk about everything from politics to sports and oils and all kinds of things. It was just a great thing. So it's it's just wonderful to travel and be able to be, um, uh, you know, entertained by people in other countries that share this love of the sport of polo. Yeah, lovely. And I love that about polo. Were you involved when William and Kate came over at all? Um, We were members of the club at the time, and uh, we did not play in the game, but it was a very, very uh, well-respected and received um, event that was held here at the Santa Barbara Polo Club. And we had thousands of people that came in, especially from uh, uh, far, near and far, I should say, uh, to watch uh, William play uh, that day here at the club. And uh, the uh, funds that were raised went to um, uh, a foundation that's very near and dear to his heart. Mm-hmm. And that was a very successful uh, event, needless to say, financially mm, I for hope so. William's uh, foundation. Yeah, wonderful. And and I should uh, I should say too that polo has probably done more than just about any discipline uh, for this on scale for charities. I I just think that there is a huge um, element of that in what I know about polo and the people involved Definitely. in polo. Yeah, yeah, which is wonderful. There are so many different uh, events that go on um, all the time, uh, everywhere, because uh, the people involved in the sport are very generous with their time and their money, (laughs) and they know that the sport is really um, gaining uh, interest with the public, and so they've been using it as a vehicle in a very good way to raise money for different uh, nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the uh, people that really does a great job with that is Nacho Figueres. Yes. And your listeners will probably know him as the handsome uh, <laughs> Ralph Lauren model. That's right. <laughs> and he has partnered with a champagne company to do uh events several uh times a year around the United States uh and um you know all the proceeds go to those foundations. Yes, yeah, wonderful. I, I, I think everybody in polo is is handsome, frankly, but Nacho <laughs> does have a notch on some of us. <laughs> he's, yes, he he's beautiful yes. to look at and, and beautiful inside too. And oh, if absolutely. if you if you were advising <clears throat> a young boy or young girl that love their horses to get into polo right now, how accessible is it and where would you have them start? 
Well, I think um, uh, to answer the questions about access, I think, um, you know, as years have moved forward, uh, polo has become uh, more widely known, so it's more accessible, uh, showing up in uh, colleges. Um, some universities are actually giving sponsorship to uh, young people uh, who have the grades and the ability to be on the polo team. But also clubs across the United States are really uh, helping young riders develop their skills. And I would say uh, to uh, any young rider or even an adult rider that uh, my philosophy is is that you work on your equitation first get a good foundation in English writing, and then you learn how to play polo because uh, learning how to ride is a, a skill that needs time and uh, patience and experience. Mm-hmm. And then the game of polo um, is, um, you know, obviously something that needs to be worked on and experienced as well. And I think once you have a good foundation through your riding, and then you learn the game of polo, and um, you will be able to communicate with your horse without even thinking about it. It will mm-hmm. just be a natural instinct. That's wonderful. Well, Doreen, thank you so much for joining us today and, and giving us a little insight into your amazing life and thank you for what you're doing for the next generation and for your family and your children and uh, all those people that are positively affected by horses and also by polo whisper the language of the herd listen you don't have to say it's time for jamie jennings to fetch an email from monty roberts inbox and share a morsel of monty's wisdom in a little segment we'd like to call ask monty Leave this world a better place in the magic in the language of the herd. Dear Monty, how do you feel your methods have impacted the dog training world? Monty's answer. Although dogs and horses are essentially at opposite ends of the biological spectrum as predators and prey animals, there are significant similarities in the way you train behavior in both species and, in fact, all species, including humans. There's a wonderful lady by the name of Jan Fennell who has developed a canine training methodology based on my concepts. She lives in England and has written, among others, a book called The Dog Listener, which I highly recommend. The ideals of are of learning the animal's natural language and of training using trust and positive reinforcement work, regardless of the species. You can access Jan's website at janfennelthedoglistener.co.uk. It is quite true that my discoveries have impacted the dog training world, unfortunately, in a very positive way. Most professional dog trainers are using far less harsh methods than they were even 10 years ago. You can see a strong movement to a more logical approach to training dogs through communication in recent years. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to www.montyroberts.com and click on the orange banner that says, Get Free Horse Tips. Hi, I'm Monty Roberts, and I know that I'm transforming the lives of horses globally. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. There's a new lesson on there each week, all the way from join up to advanced. 
Watch world's champions give their lessons. Join at MontyRoberts.com. Go to my Equus Online University. You can transform your horse, too. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. October 20 starts his tour in England, and that starts at the Hartbury College in the UK. Then October 25, he's at Marist Wood College, been there many times, a beautiful building. October 28, he is in the Lewis Equine Center in the UK. November 2... In November 4, he's at the Richmond Equestrian Center and the Alnick Ford Equestrian Center in UK. And then November 9, he skips over to Germany and he'll be in uh, Ansbach on November 9. He'll be in Nubilach November 11 and 12. Then he'll be in Berlin November 18 and 19. And then for those people who plan ahead on July 23 through August 3 of 2018, Early announcing our Gentling Wild Horses course at Flag is Up Farms in Solvang, California. And then August 6 through 10, his Monty special training. That's our special one that he has once a year. And that's also at Flag is Up Farms in Solvang, California. And if you couldn't remember all of that, he's a busy guy. You can find it all and more at MontyRoberts.com. Or you can speak with a real life pleasant human being at Flag is Up Farm by calling 805 688 And for details about today's show, you can go to horsemanshipradio.com where you'll find links, photos, and more information about our guests. And we love your feedback. It helps us make this show better. If you've got questions, if you've got comments, follow Monty Roberts on Facebook. Just type in Monty Roberts or you can follow him on Twitter. His handle is Monty underscore Roberts. Now, now that you've done that, go get the app. That's the easiest way to listen to Horsemanship Radio and all the other shows on the Horse Radio Network. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. It's available for Android, excuse me, and Apple phones, and it's free and easy to use. It is. And really, it takes Jen up on that. Put questions for Monty up on either my Facebook page or, or Dad's page, and we'd love to answer them. I get tons of emails, but that's always from the same group, too. You know, I everybody on my email list uh, probably has been sending in questions for years. So let's get Facebook involved and Twitter let's see, and Instagram, too. We have Instagram, too. So many thanks to our sponsors, and that would be uh, we've got Cavallo, Horse and Rider. My title sponsor is Omega Fields and, of course, Monty Roberts University. And be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours.